Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 108 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Tony Rose Deanna and she, they pronouns a community engagement manager here at MCP. And I am joined by the queen of blended learning, in my opinion, Dr. Catlin Tucker. Welcome, Catlin. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, this is MCP's third podcast episode with you, actually. And so the first two, it was you and Cream. And so this third one is going to mean you, which is really exciting. So I'm really just excited to to be the one to have this conversation with you. So the theme for October is all about collaboration and community connection slash community building. But before we get started, how are you feeling today? I'm good. It's been a crazy week. So I'm, I'm excited it's uh, the end of this week, <laughs> but overall great. Gosh, aren't we all? I always look forward to Fridays because I feel like Monday through Thursday, like Thursday is my most ridiculous and busiest day. And so by the time Friday hits, I'm like just sitting and staring at the wall. <laughs> yeah, ready, ready for a break. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. So for our new listeners, tell us a little bit about you. This could be, you know, something professionally that you've done or personally that you've done, but something that I like to ask people lately is what is your favorite thing about life right now? I am loving the beginning of the changing of the seasons here in Northern California. I go walk my dog, Lila Grace, every single day. We walk like anywhere from four to six miles because she's a young one with lots of energy and just starting to like have the weather cool. I'm starting to kind of see slight changes in the leaf color like that. I love it. I can't believe it's already fall of 2022, which is, it's so wild to me. Um, and also four to six miles with your dogs. My dogs would be so happy if they can get a mile out of me. <laughs> uh, they definitely have a lot of energy. So we're going to, we're going to build up to that. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. No, mine does too, which is why we go on these crazy walks and I'm a walker, so I love it. But yeah, she's, she's pretty spoiled. Oh, that's so great. I know I hear people talk about taking their dogs out for like three mile walks. And I'm like, I take my dogs out for a 10 minute walk. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure they could. Yeah, I'm sure they want more, but I'm going to do better at some point. <laughs> um, so for our just kind of a recap about what MCP and or Kareem and you have talked about for our first episode together, you and Kareem address issues and talked about innovation in the world of education. And then the second one with Kareem was all about the importance of classroom routine and procedures. And so this time around, like I said, we're going to be talking about collaboration and community building. So here at Modern Classroom, there have been misconceptions that learners are just on computers all day because that's what blended learning looks like and feels like for a lot of people. And that collaboration is impossible in self-pacing learning environments because learners are just completing different lessons, right? So what would your response be to comments like these? Yeah, I, for me, it's all about blended learning isn't about just the technology. Technology is a really important vehicle to shift students to the center of this learning experience, giving them more control over different elements of their learning, connecting them to information, but also to each other. And I worry that so often technology is used simply to isolate learners, to kind of like keep them quiet over here while we're doing something over here. And it's a real missed opportunity because technology is also a great connector. Um, and then when kids aren't 
using technology, they should have these opportunities to engage in social, tactile, collaborative kind of experiences with their peers. So for me, when people associate blended learning with, you know, technology and staring at a screen, I remind them it's active engaged learning online, yes, but combined with active engaged learning offline. And that offline component is critical for students to be developing their self-awareness, their self-management skills, their responsible decision-making, having opportunities to learn with and from each other. So for me, that online that online piece and offline piece, they're equally important. I don't give any more importance to the online or the technology component of a blended lesson. And I really like that you pointed that out too, right? It's the active engaged learning that's happening with technology and without technology. And I think definitely when it comes to learning something new or learning something challenging, I feel like our learners do a much better job when they have that social time to have conversations about what they're learning. And that's that's collaboration in itself. Absolutely. They they it's really hard to make meaning all on your own, right? We can encounter information and acquire information. um, And that happens really a lot on a computer, right? Whether we're listening to a podcast, exploring a website, reading an article, watching a video, but to really process and go through the work of making meaning, that usually entails interaction with other people. Like, hey, I watched this, I read this, I saw this, but I walked away thinking these different things and I had these questions. What was your experience? And it's in that interaction, kind of like testing our ideas and asking questions against the group where we really start to construct knowledge. Yeah. And when we talk about creating instructional videos, I know one of the options that I had for students is that they could watch it with a friend. And so we had headphone splitters. And then I would be even more intentional with having pauses in the video of being like, okay, we just talked about this one thing. Now with your partner, what did, what was your biggest key, like your key takeaway, right? And so they have those conversations. So it's not just me stating in the video now pause, right? Because sometimes students just keep on watching anyway. Um, But with tools like Edpuzzle, there was a way for me to just really pause the video. And so everything just stops. And they're like, oh, wait a minute, there's something that pops up. Oh, we need to talk about what we just listened to. And then they realize, oh, I I wasn't paying attention. Let me rewind. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was slipping into that passive observer, that passive consumer. And what's interesting about this conversation, and I am so grateful for where my blended learning journey began because it was in a very low tech school. I did not have technology in my classroom. When I first started blending, it was using the devices that started coming through the door in my students' pockets and in their backpacks. And so, you know, maybe one in five students had a smartphone. And so everything I designed that was online had to be collaborative, whether it was watching a video, whether it was doing some research to build background. Um, And I think because of that, I just saw the power of using the online learning piece to connect students. So that's always been the way I approached the design work as when I was teaching and now as a coach working with teachers. So yeah, like you're saying, even a video that feels like a very individual experience, we can build in this interaction with others in really intentional ways to maximize the effect of those videos. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, I'm really glad that you pointed out the low tech 
um, component of it because we do have some implementers who are saying, well, I don't have, there's not one-to-one devices or I don't have a lot of technology or I'm at a school where like technology, we just cannot do it because of whatever reason. Um, And so it's really good to know that like, you know, it's okay, like use the devices that are available to you and then we can make it work somehow. Um, And for the schools, it could be like alternative schools sometimes, Catlin, where they say like, we just can't do computer. Um, And so depending on the situation, right, like we could watch that video together as a class and then everything else can be hands on and collaborative, right? So um, it's always, there's so many different ways to do collaborative work with blended learning as well, self-pacing. Another thing too that I always told our teachers too is that, yeah, you're right, your students are all over the place, right? But at the same time, your unit has a theme, like you're covering something that's similar, right? Like you have an overall theme. And so for me, I just always had questions that students could answer regardless of where they were. Mm-hmm. And so there's always an entry point for students to be able to participate and not feel bad if they're not in lesson five just yet. Right. Um, and so even with the self-pacing, we have our, you know, our, our student leaders who can help other students who are a little bit slower or, you know, find the content to be a little bit challenging. And that in itself is also collaboration. I think we're just trying to um, be a little bit. I know sometimes when we're trying something new, especially like in a new instructor model, right? Like a lot of things that we know as teachers go out the window for some reason. <laughs> it's true. It's like, no, you don't have to get rid of all of the strategies that you have been using because a lot of those strategies actually work, right? It's just a different way of doing it. Well, and even things like discussion, right? As I'm listening to you talk, I can imagine that a teacher in a modern classroom project who's like kind of finding their footing, designing for that new model might feel like, well, I can't have kids really engage in discussion because they're in all these different places. And when you have like an overarching theme, like you're saying for your unit, or you even think about, gosh, what discussion questions at certain moments in this the sequence, do I, would I really like students engaging in discussion? Well, then we can create asynchronous discussions, right? Either text-based in our learning management system or video-based in FLIP, where when students hit that point, they record an answer or response, or they type an answer response, and then their peers are, you know, going to arrive at different times, but there's still a degree of them interacting and learning from each other in that synchronous mode. So it's also about thinking about what strategies are we trying to reimagine in this new model, there may be a way to bring kids together and collaborate that has more of an asynchronous component. Like I love thinking routines from Harvard's Graduate School of Education. I think they're so wonderful. And I ended up making digital versions where it's literally one slide deck. Students hop into the deck, they put the name on their name on a slide, and they complete the thinking routine. And even things like that could have kind of a community, um, students learning from each other kind of element if we're just allowing students to come to those kind of moments online, participate when they're ready, um, and build in some kind of expectation that you explore another slide and leave a comment or, you know, you reply to X number of your peers in this online discussion. So there's so many ways to facilitate those interactions. And it doesn't always have to be like in real time synchronously in the classroom. 
Oh, I love that so much because now I'm thinking about it too, you know, with the discussions being asynchronous, it allows for our students who are a little bit quieter, right, to be to still be able to participate and engage in the discussion, honestly. So I love that. And tools like Parlay Ideas was something that I loved as an English teacher when I was doing uh, Modern Classroom as well. It's just kind of figuring out like, what do discussions look like? And I think also sometimes our teachers need permission. Like, yes, it's self-pacing, but you could also have a day where there's not self-pacing. So you could do self-pacing Monday, Tuesday, and then Wednesday do a whole class discussion about what they've been working on for the past two days, and then do Thursday, Friday self-pacing again. So you really can, as a teacher, figure out what that schedule looks like for you. Um, Another thing that you were talking about as far as questions, right? Like having those um, questions that kind of cover the overarching theme of the unit. And I know that I worked at an IB school, and so we had to have questions that we were asking asking our students every single time that they walk in. And so again, backwards planning, it's really important to figure out what tasks students are completing, what, what students are, you know, are participating in and being really intentional with that so that everything that they're doing is actually related to what they need to be learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like what is this desired outcome? What are we working toward? And then let's plan to ensure that the trajectory or the sequence of learning experiences is really designed to take students to that particular outcome or goal or desired result. Yeah. And something else that I was thinking too, Catlin, when you were talking the slide deck, I know sometimes teachers are really nervous about allowing everyone access for the slide deck. Um, what would be your tip or advice for that? I am, you know, kids are kids. They are going to see how far they can push certain things. I think so often teachers are like, I'm not even going to try it because I'm so scared of what kids will do on this slide deck. And my feeling as a coach is always, if you have a fear, don't let it shut down in action. Don't let it stop you from trying something. Figure out how do we get out in front of whatever it is we're afraid of. So if everybody jumping on a slide deck is scary because one, they might say stuff that is inappropriate or two, they might accidentally delete somebody else's work, right? Those are real valid fears about having collaboration on a slide deck. I wouldn't not do it because I'm scared of those things. I would engage my class in a conversation about, hey, this is why we're on this slide deck together. Here's the value of doing this as a community, as opposed to each of you having your own individual slide deck. And then I'm jumping from one deck to the other. And really the only person viewing your work is me. I want you to have more of an audience, more interaction. What can we agree to as a class community that we're going to like is going to keep this productive and supportive and kind or however you want to phrase it and just come up with some agreements about that particular interaction. And then, okay, if somebody accidentally deletes something, do we know how to back button? What are we going to do in that moment? How do we handle it as a community? So for me, it's like, kids are going to make mistakes and being in school, it's all about learning how to be a responsible part of a learning community an academic student. And so these are skills that instead of avoiding because we're, we're nervous or we're afraid, it's like, let's be proactive and let's engage students in the conversation. Um, and then, you know, if these are the expectations and somebody violates that, 
what's an appropriate consequence? Like be really clear about what we're doing in this environment and what's going to happen if you choose to violate one of these expectations we've just established. So that's, you know, it's like you're going to have teachable moments. You're going to have moments where you're frustrated because a kid didn't behave the way they were supposed to. But like, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, they always, they definitely keep you on your toes, right? Students are amazing. Um, and also something too that popped up for me was that, you know, if this is something that you've never done before in a classroom, definitely try it with a low lift activity, right? So the first time I did this slide deck share, I was super nervous, but we just did selfies. And like, it was a great way for students to introduce themselves. And so they really loved just making their slide their own and being able to just kind of uh, sift through the slide as well. And and funny enough, I did the same thing with some of um, the teachers that I work with as well, you know, because I'm like, okay, this is how it feels to be all in the slide deck so that you can kind of see like, oh, there's going to be a lot of people popping in, popping out. You're going to see where people are, um, you know, in, in each slide. And so it's just such a fun little activity. And I think, like you said, as long as there's expectations and guidelines and consequences and lots of conversations. I think that this is such a great activity for students to continue practicing. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I like the idea of the low lift. Like I always started the school year with like this Frayer style slide for each student that was kind of this, I want to learn about you slide. And so again, it was like your selfie. It's just a low barrier to entry. It's all about them. It gets them used to being in a shared deck. If something gets deleted, it's like not the end of the world. Um, And then we can progress to more academic tasks in these shared Google slides. Yeah. And it's also a great preview of you of like which kid, you know, is going to fool around. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's always a fun, fun little task for me. Um, okay. Let's, let's continue the question. So with COVID still being present, of course, collaboration has looked a little bit different now than it did before because of all the technology, asynchronous versus synchronous, right? And, and so there are some health guidelines and social distancing involved. So learners couldn't really work in a group. And so I've heard time and time again, especially last year, I don't know how to make this a collaborative thing with my students because they can't work together in the same space. So then how does technology help with this? And I know we've talked about it a little bit, um, but I really want our listeners and our implementers to understand that like collaboration doesn't necessarily mean being in the same physical space. And so with that, like how has technology helped with that, with hybrid, right? With students, some being at home, some in school, how has collaboration changed? And really has it changed? Because I think a lot of the times, you know, teachers are, you know, it's just hard. It's hard. I don't know how to do it. Um, and so what are some collaborative tools that have that have been introduced or enhanced during COVID that you know of? Yeah, I mean, I wrote, I remember writing a blog during the height of the pandemic where the whole focus was like, we can't have students in close physical proximity, but we can leverage these shared digital spaces to bring them together and allow for collaboration. And that could be something as simple as getting a group of three or four students on a shared Google document and having like basically a text copied and pasted in that document and like in a two column chart and one column is the text and one column is their shared note taking, right? Let's get into a shared text 
text together. Let's each grab a font color. I'm going to highlight things in my font color and take notes in this like, you know, right hand column about questions that are occurring to me, vocabulary that's new that I'm looking up, um, takeaways from the text where it's so simple. But again, it's taking something like reading, which is often like a really solitary endeavor. Um, it often happens kind of either as a whole class, they're like plowing through something together. And we all know kids pace through reading differently. They need different amounts of time to process what they're reading. But it's taking that experience of reading and just using something simple like a collaborative document to pull a handful of students together so that as they're reading, they can be using the chat, they can be leaving each other comments and notes and having a bit of peer support to navigate what might be kind of a complex text. Obviously, we can use things like Google Slides to get kids working together to build background on a topic. So they can be spread out in a classroom, but maybe they're about to study a particular time period or a person and the teacher wants them building background. So they're doing some online research and they're pulling together what they are learning in this shared slide deck. So like whenever I taught a novel at the secondary level, I wanted kids to have a sense of the historical um, context, whether, you know, it was California and migrant workers because we're reading something by Steinbeck or whether it was understanding parts of Elizabethan England, right? Like fashion and entertainment and crime and punishment and the plague and other illnesses. It was like I'd group students based on interest. They'd have a shared deck. They'd do research. They'd kind of pull it together with images and text on a shared deck that then they could record a presentation for their peers to self-pace through. So I, I don't know what I would have done like in the pandemic without the collaborative suite like Google, because that's so incredibly helpful. Um, obviously, I love Flip, which used to be Flipgrid, just as a space to kind of make that human connection because of the video component and kids sharing ideas is, you know, whether it's, you know, their prior knowledge on something or their thinking in response to questions, um, reflections that they capture in Flip. I think that's really powerful too, especially when we're working with kids when we're working online and they didn't have, they weren't even in a physical space together. I think getting to see each other's faces and hearing each other's voices as they were interacting in that space was really powerful. So, so many different digital spaces where we can pull kids together and have them working on shared tasks, even if they're not in close physical proximity together. Yeah. And another tool that is up and coming too, Catlin, you and I talked about it on Twitter is Canva. You oh, can actually yeah. do a lot of collaborative work on Canva now with designing, which I think is just really dope. Yeah. Especially I, I loved using it for like infographics and um, creating digital newsletters for, you know, families. I, it's very, very cool. Yeah. And I, I mean, I remember using it with students back in 2020 and they loved it. So I can only imagine how it is now. Um, okay. So, you know, <laughs> I, I know as a learner, like growing up in my K through 12 experience, I hated group work um, <laughs> because I always ended up being the one who did the most work. You and me and both. So, yeah. And it was just so frustrating. Like whenever my teacher would say, okay, get in a group, I'm like rolling my eyes because I'm like, why can't I just do this by, by myself? <laughs> uh, so then how can we ensure each learner is doing their part when it comes to collaborative work? 
Yeah. I mean, I had the exact same experience and, and I have to own the fact that I'm like a little bit of a type A bulldozer. So it was like, I want this done right. I'm taking charge. Um, (laughs) but, and I had as a teacher, so many moments where kids would say, I, can I just work by myself? Like, I don't want to work in a group. And sometimes the answer was no, like in life, you are going to have to negotiate tasks with diverse groups of people. And sometimes you're going to love working with them. And sometimes you're not. And learning how to negotiate those social dynamics in a shared task is a really important life skill. So, you know, teachers can decide, would it be helpful to have everybody in the group have a particular role or kind of focus or lens that's guiding their specific contributions to the group? Giving something making sure everybody has something that they're really focused on and that they're going to kind of own in the group work, I think can be very helpful. I like to allow students to kind of choose their role as opposed to assigning things like that, just giving them some agency to figure out what are my strengths in group work? Which of these roles do I think I would be best at? I also think, and this is something that's easy to neglect in kind of the craziness of a class, but I think there needs to be a pretty consistent self-assessment routine following any kind of collaboration. And that could be self plus peer assessment. So at the end of a collaborative task, it's like, okay, here's a simple rubric about what it looks like to collaborate on kind of a mastery scale, beginning, developing, proficient, mastery. Where do you see yourself as a collaborator, as a participant in this group? Can you give yourself a self-assessment score, write me a little something or record something explaining your score, and then maybe even having them select two other peers to do a self-assessment or a, a peer assessment for? Just creating a degree of accountability so that they understand, oh, this is what it looks like to be mastery when it comes to collaborating with others. That's what I'm working toward. Um, I, I have, there's some accountability about my behavior, my contributions in this interaction. Um, and then I used to have students bring those kinds of self-assessments and peer assessments when we would do conferencing, right? Like, let's check in about your progress as a participant in small group discussions. That's something we need to review and talk about. So I think, again, it's like, what are the expectations? Maybe we leverage some roles. And then let's really encourage a kind of metacognitive practice, a self-assessment practice, maybe even a peer assessment kind of practice at the end. So students realize it's your job to participate in these moments and be a contributor. And I really love that part, too, because I think that was the missing piece for when I was a student. There was no way to provide feedback or even do a self-assessment. And something, too, that I'm thinking about is that sometimes as teachers, we give our students self-assessments and peer, you know, peer feedback and peer assessments, but then our students have no idea how to fill it out right? They just say like IDK. (laughs) And it's like the most annoying thing in the world. And so I think I, as something I really want to reiterate is that we want to model and practice what those assessments uh, look like, right? So like a self-assessment, being really true and honest and really being able to reflect because sometimes, you know, we do get this, uh, we get some feedback or questions about how do you get students to take reflection seriously? Uh, Because I'm getting a lot of just very not great responses. And so again, modeling it, showing how it's supposed to look and how to reflect. I think those are skills that 
need to be taught because we can't expect our students to know how to do it. No. And even using strategies like, and I understand all these things take time, but even using a strategy like a fishbowl and having, you know, a group in the middle who are kind of it could be role playing or it could be actually like collaborating around a shared task. And then after that middle group has kind of done their uh, scene or they've actually attempted to collaborate, talking about what worked in this moment. Like, what did you see that helped this group move forward in terms of this shared task? What seemed to be really um, helpful in their interactions? What was challenging about their interaction? So it's again, it's like, They don't always know what this stuff looks like. It's not, there are a lot of students who are going to school every day who don't actually get a lot of opportunities to interact with their peers. And so it is about clear expectations. It's modeling. And it might even be doing some kind of role play to explore what does this look like and what strategy should they be using in these moments when they're interacting with each other. Yeah, that's such a great point that you said as well, is that a lot of the students don't have the opportunities to interact with each other, right? So even if they are 10th or 11th graders, still practicing and modeling these skills are really important Mm -hmm. Uh, because we just don't want to assume that they should know how to do it by now, right? Right. And so because even like working with adults, right, sometimes adults don't know how to do something and it's like, oh, okay, let me just like, <laughs> re- <laughs> like go over this real quick. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, okay, so we talked about like, how do we make sure everyone is doing their work? But then now as a teacher, you know, grading is an issue. So not an issue, but it's a hot button for a lot of educators, right? And so especially when it comes to mastery-based grading or standards-based grading, right? So then how would you recommend collaborative work to be graded? Or do you think it should be graded? It depends. It absolutely depends. So for me, I have shared uh, several times kind of this flow chart that I use when I'm trying to determine when I was teaching what to grade or even as a professor what I'm going to grade versus what I'm not. And so for me, it, it becomes what is the answer to the question of like, what is the purpose of this work, right? So if the purpose of the work is practice or review, and kids do a lot of practice, a lot of review, because they're trying to hone these skills, develop content knowledge. I don't think that that should be graded. I don't think it should even get teacher feedback. So in those moments, what I would prefer to do is position the student to do a self-assessment, right? Whether it's, you know, grading with an answer key or comparing what they did to like a strong example and then filling out a simple rubric. So if kids are collaborating around review and practice and they're working together and they're having conversations, they can even do the the self-assessment piece together. I would not grade that. I think practice and review just has to be the safe space for them to fail. And when we start grading those things, we, we make it not safe for them to make mistakes. If the, you know, if the purpose of work is they are working toward a product. So if they're working with a partner or a group and they are working to create something together, my focus is on feedback, giving them focused, actionable feedback as they work so that they can improve this piece that's in progress. No grade. If the thing they're working on is a final assessment, it's a final project, if that is a shared task, that does get graded and graded with a standard aligned rubric. But I tell teachers at that point, if it's the end, I wouldn't cover whatever this thing is in a bunch of additional feedback and comments because 
they're not going to do anything with them. And that's not going to move the needle in terms of their content knowledge and skill set. So regardless of whether it's an individual task or a collaborative task, that's always the kind of lens that I'm using to figure out what should we be grading? What, where is that value? Because if we start throwing grades on everything, it's, they become about compliance. They're not about true reflections of skills. Yes, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> um, I I have a love hate relationship with grades. I think everyone does. Yeah, yeah. I was I was an A student, and I couldn't tell you what I learned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just wanted that A, and so um, when I was teaching, I always told my students, "Please don't ask me about grades. Ask me about feedback. Ask me about revisions, but don't ask me about grades." And we just had that good understanding. We ju- we just had that understanding that that was not what we were going to talk about in class. And so I really like your practice here of like, you know what, the practice and review, there's no grade. That's a space for them to make mistakes, embrace mistakes, learn from their mistakes. And then again, you know, talking about like, if this is something that they're creating together, you're going to give them actionable feedback, um, no grade, but then if it's a final assessment, then definitely, right? And so I think sometimes teachers and schools get kind of carried away with grades. You kind of have to get real creative with it, which I think is really unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And and helping students, honestly, because the, the big fear is, right, well, if you're asking them to do this practice and review and you're not going to grade it, they're just not going to do it. And I disagree. I think they begin to understand these, these review and practice activities they're doing ultimately will help them perform better on the assessments. And so helping students to understand the value, the kind of why behind the tasks we're asking them to do, that becomes the critical piece. And then for me, you know, I would build in these guardrails in my own class where literally students, if when I started grading less, I was actually able to give them more opportunities to revise, rework, and resubmit, like actually reinforcing a growth mindset, right? Which I wasn't able to do when I was trying to grade everything because I barely got through the first round of grading, let alone letting them resubmit whatever they wanted to. So by pulling back the volume of grading, I was able to encourage them, yeah, you don't like your assessment score. You're not happy with this grade. You think you can do better? Phenomenal. Keep working with this piece. Request feedback if you want to continue working with this particular piece. Um, And that became a really powerful shift, but they could not request a reassessment if they had holes in that review and practice, if they hadn't been doing that work along the way. And so a lot of kids were like, wait, I don't like this grade. I want to, I want to keep working with this essay, or I'd love to reassess on this. And I'd say, oh, well, it looks like you've got a few holes in your review and practice. You need to double back and do those because those are going to help you perform better on this reassessment when it happens. Um, So there's ways to handle it where you create these kind of um, incentives for students to start to really do the little, the little activities that are leading up to those assessments and, and start to recognize the value of them. Yeah. I mean, and there have been times as well in my class where students graded themselves and each other. And that was like something that they were like, oh, wait a minute. Let me look at the rubric and make sure I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing if I'm going to give myself this grade. Because it was also a conversation, right? Of like, 
why do you think that you deserve an eight? <laughs> like eight is perfect. And uh, let's have a conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so, and I think there's just a lot more ownership that way. And they really do dive into rubrics, you know, into the rubrics to see like, oh, okay, I'm grading myself. So let me make sure that I'm covering what I need to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. Okay. So what are some other tips, tricks, and suggestions when it comes to creating collaborative tasks for learners? You kind of already talked about being super intentional and um, figuring out like what we we also talked about how, you know, in the unit, you have to be intentional, backwards planning, figuring out what works and what doesn't work and what is really a must do. But do you have any other things that people or teachers should know about? I just really want when we're designing these learning experiences to be really intentional about, okay, so there's kind of like these, when we talk about backward design, it's like there's moments where students are acquiring information. There's moments where they're in that meaning making process of like, I've got this new information. I'm trying to process it and make this meaning. And then we have the moments where they're taking what they learned and like transferring or applying it. And for me, what I would love for teachers to be considering is where is the collaboration really going to enhance the student's experience? So for some students that acquire information stage where they're watching a video, they're listening to podcasts, they're getting pulled into small group instruction, um, those sometimes that works better for some learners on their own. And it might be helpful for them to be able to decide, would it be better for me to self-pace through this video on my own? Or like you shared earlier, have those split earbuds and have a partner who can kind of help me understand this information better by pausing this video and having like quick chats throughout it. So it's in that acquire information stage, that initial stage where, you know, I'm really aware that like, I like to process new information by myself. The initial like interaction with it, I like to self-pace. I like to do it on my own. The meaning making, I think that middle stage is where it's so critical that we're prioritizing collaboration because it's in those moments where we're trying to really process and understand what we acquired, where it's helpful to be able to test our ideas out against somebody else. So whether that's discussion, whether that is working together on a concept map, whether that is, you know, some kind of a shared, um, task. Maybe they each do a piece of writing and then they read it to each other. Like that is a moment where I think collaboration can be so incredibly powerful. And then when it comes to the transfer and application, you, you, again, that's an opportunity to maybe give students meaningful choice, which is, would you prefer to take what you learned and kind of apply it on your own? Or would it be really helpful to have a peer to support you in that process? So as we think about the different stages of the learning happening in a particular cycle or unit, um, kind of really thinking through and acknowledging, like you said, we both struggled with collaboration growing up. So there are some students who absolutely love it and they'll opt for it at certain times in the learning cycle. Um, And then there are times when I think they should just have to collaborate because it's going to make the experience richer. I, I love all of what you just said, Catlin. It makes me, again, just want to jump right back into the classroom and try it all out. Um, because when I did collaborative work in my classes, I never thought about, okay, what are some ways that collabor- collaborative work could enhance what we're learning, right? For me, when I did collaborative work, it was just like, oh, we need to have collaborative work. So we're going to put that. Right. <laughs> um, and And so, yeah, I really like that there's a lot more intent behind that. And I think that that's going to make it more impactful for our learners. 
everyone. We have some great things coming up this week. We are partnering with Screencastify to bring a 30-minute webinar for all of you this upcoming Wednesday, October 12th at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Right after that, we have our monthly implementer meetup at 7 p.m. Eastern Time where you can brainstorm with other MCP educators all over the world. Registration links are provided in the show notes. One last thing, our first school year mentorship program is starting soon. So if you signed up, you'll be receiving emails connecting you with your mentors. We're so excited to see all the magic that you create. All right, so let's shift gears and focus on community building. I've noticed that some educators really struggled getting their learners to work collaboratively, and I think it has everything to do with the community building aspect of it all. So especially since learners have been out due to COVID, learners will need clear guidelines and support on how to collaborate with their peers. So how can we get our learners to feel comfortable with each other, that they are open to sharing their ideas, um, that they're open to working on things together? Because I know with the break, you know, students being at home and not having that social part of it all. How can we as educators make sure that students feel comfortable? Yeah, that's, it's such an important conversation to be having because I think part of why last school year was so incredibly challenging. And it's funny because teachers were so excited to get back into the classrooms. And then it was arguably a more challenging year than we were when we were all floundering through online learning, right? It was like kids had been in their home environments, enjoying a high degree of autonomy and kind of agency over their days. They're like reacclimating to these academic spaces. They'd been socially isolated. So it was just like this recipe for disaster. And then literally the focus felt everything I was hearing was like learning loss, learning loss, learning loss. We got to get these kids caught up. And I was thinking, no, community building, community building, community building. We have kids who have dealt with trauma coming back into these classrooms. We have kids who haven't been in an academic setting for two years coming back into these spaces. What we need to be focusing on is helping to develop the social presence in our classrooms, creating a learning community where students feel comfortable projecting their social and emotional selves. And so there was this big focus on SEL and social emotional learning, but it always felt like an add-on. I was observing it in my own two children and like how SEL was handled at their school, which was, you're going to have an SEL block for 30 minutes every other day. And I would ask them like, what are you doing in your SEL block? And they're like, nothing really like just kind of, it's just more work time. And so for me, I'd love to see these skills being woven into the fabric of the work we're doing in our classrooms, not as an add-on, but as a real fundamental part of our work with students. And I actually just wrote an entire blog series where I took the castle framework and focused in each blog on one of the five competencies, right? Thinking about how do we help students develop self-awareness, self-management, responsible decision-making, relationship skills, social awareness. Like what could that look like if we want to cultivate these skills within the fabric of our subject areas? Um, and so for me, it has to be that integration because if kids aren't, don't feel connected to each other, they don't feel there's that sense of group cohesion. They don't feel safe sharing their ideas and engaging in open, honest communication. If they don't know how to self-regulate, then they're not going to be effective collaborators. They're not going to feel comfortable engaging in 
online or real-time discussions. They're not going to have the skills to negotiate some of the challenging aspects of working with other humans in a group on a shared task. So for me, I'd love to see a real focus on those five competencies and developing those skills within the context of our classes. Yes, yes, and yes. Um, when you were talking about learning loss, I remember the first time that was like thrown around uh, in the middle of the school year or like at the end of it. I was just getting so frustrated because I knew once that phrase was out, teachers were going to focus on just teaching, right? And they were just going to focus on just like teaching the content, honestly. And I was like, no, like we have to like slow down. And, and you know, you said less is more. It really is like less is more. And so even though we've been out for two years, doesn't necessarily mean that you have to teach six different skills in one week and not talk about the trauma that has happened. And so I really like that you pointed out that the focus, we need to focus on community building regardless of what's happening in the world, right? Like community building is really, really, really important for us to create a brave space for students to learn, embrace their mistakes. No, absolutely. Because fundamentally, that's what a class is, right? A learning community. But we're not going to be effective in the learning part if we neglect neglect that community part. Yeah. And that's the thing too, you know, like the social emotional learning is being thrown around and not being implemented effectively. It's just kind of like a a way to say like, oh, we're doing it. But then like, how are we really doing it? You know? Mm Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the Castle Foundation, which I like recently found out like last year about, which is mind blowing. But I really do love the five foundations that you talked about. And I think with the model that we have with Modern Classroom, students are able to be more self-aware. They are able to really regulate their emotions as well because it's self-pacing and they kind of have to take ownership and responsibility for how they're going to use your time, how they're going to, you know, like understand like, oh, I'm not focused right now. So what do I need to do to refocus? And so I think the the Castle Foundation is definitely something to look at. And I'll definitely check out the blog post that you wrote about it as well, because I think for me as a teacher, my my priority was getting to know my students first as human beings before students. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree. I just, I always felt like if they don't know me and I don't know them and they're not comfortable with each other. We're just not going to get very far in this work because we need each other to make progress. Yeah. And I taught middle school. And so I had to be okay looking like a fool (laughs) in front of all the kids because, you know, they're brutal. Middle schoolers are brutal. And I had to be okay with that. But if I wanted them to do something, I had to do it myself so that I could model it for them. They had, you know, expectations. And it was also like, here's some getting to know you questions that I'm also going to answer as a teacher because I want you to know me as a human being as well. Oh yeah. No, I, I, I love that. I love that you're making that point. You, as the teacher, you got to do it too. You have to like create that transparency about the process, the activity, like just like you, it wasn't questions, but I always use something called the random autobiography, which was basically like a free verse poem that took the place of the really boring welcome letters that I would get at the beginning of the school year. And they were just composed of all these like random lines of information about people. Like my favorite color is yellow. Oh, yellow. I graduate from UCLA. I have a sister, Erin, who makes me laugh. I love Mexican food and anything spicy. So it's like all of these random things. And I would read mine for students and I would include some personal stuff in there. 
there um, to, so they kind of saw me as more of like an actual human, not just their teacher. And then they would use mine as a model and they'd write them for me and they would share the most incredible stuff about their lives. And yeah, so finding ways to do that where, yeah, you you model and sometimes in that modeling, you are going to feel a little bit ridiculous. I had those moments as well, but there, it's you become human in those moments. And I think there's a much more appreciation for the teacher when that happens. Um, and our students are aware like, oh, they're down to like get dirty with us and like, <laughs> you know, laugh and, you know, joke around. And and it's great. And it's also a great way to find shared interest among among the community. Right. And just be like, oh, so and so also roller skates. Cool. We can talk about roller skating. And so I think that that's just such an important thing. And so especially in the beginning of the school year, of course, right, community building is really important, figuring out what your students are comfortable with, what they're not comfortable with, what they want to do, and just having lots of conversations and welcoming those conversations with students, um, just so that they know that this is their space as well. Because, you know, again, sometimes that when they do collaborative work, right, like heads are going to not work sometimes. Um, <laughs> and they're going to butt against each other. Just, you know, lots of things, especially middle schools, lots of drama. Um, but it's also just really nice to be like, okay, well, then how do we navigate this? Right? Because this is a life skill that you need to have. I'm not just going to say like, okay, cool, you can work with someone else. Because that's how life works sometimes. Yeah. So, but yeah, just definitely having those conversations. I love anything community building. <laughs> Like my favorite thing in the world. Um, have you heard or seen that TikTok that went viral about the little kid who said they like corn? No. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. So I saw on Instagram. It's so it's so beautiful. And he was like crowned. Um, there's like a corn palace in South Dakota, which I have been to, and it's amazing. <laughs> Uh, but they like crowned him the the corn king or something. But uh, <laughs> a teacher actually, because, you know, again, this is like relevant to students because students know about this. And so they created an ode to that. So they created something that was very similar, but it's not I like corn, but it was what they liked. Um, and I thought, wow, this is such a great way to like make it culturally relevant because it's something that's like viral right now. And the students had so much fun uh, creating it and then talking about it together and getting to know each other. So lots of creative ways out there. And so now we're talking about that. What are some of your favorite activities to build community in the classroom? And what have you seen other educators do in their classrooms as well? Yeah, I think it's really sweet. I had my my first cohort of graduate students about uh, two years ago. So it was during the pandemic. We were all online, even though it was supposed to be a hybrid graduate course, and they're all working to become teachers. And I thought, okay, one of the big misconceptions of online learning is it's really hard to build community. So I started every single class with a check-in conversation. And I have since shared my entire slide deck of these check-in chat conversations that I've been adding to for the last two years. I think there's like 30 of them. Um, and the whole idea it was just like, let's have a, a fun, informal check-in or icebreaker conversation at the beginning of every class so we can truly get to know each other. And it was so powerful. And it was cute because on my podcast, I interviewed two of my first, uh, two students from my first cohort after their first year of teaching. And they both said they started every single class doing that. And it was 
absolutely the thing they credited for how strong their class communities felt. So it's not just the beginning of the year, but it's really like, how are we nurturing and maintaining community over the course of the year with fun, informal conversations where kids get comfortable chatting and interacting with each other? Um, I love like getting kids up out of their seats for like class scavenger hunts where they have to talk one-on-one, start with an introduction. They can ask each other up to three questions and see like, does, has this person left the country? Did they go camping this summer? Do they like swimming or whatever the, the prompts were just so they could start to interact, break the ice, get to know each other. Um, we do a lot of things on shared Google slide decks where, like I said, it was like kind of like a phrase model design, but they would insert a video of their favorite song, right? And they would insert a picture of their favorite meal and just all these different ways for them to start to, like you said, appreciate just the commonality among the different members of the group, start making connections. Um, And I've just seen teachers do all kinds of like fun interactions. My biggest concern is that usually those are housed in the first two weeks of school and then they kind of move on. Um, And without continuing to nurture the community, I think it's easy to get into December and a kid points across the room and they're like, well, what she said. And I'm like, oh my gosh, do you not know this person's name? We've been in this room for months and that's, that's not okay. Oh, that's such a good point, Catelyn. It's not just for the two weeks of school. It literally has to be the entire school year and even after. You're so right. And it could just be like a quick check-in question. I know the way that I did it, because again, I taught middle school, they had a lot of tea to spill, right? Lots of gossip. (laughs) Every day is story time. And I knew that I couldn't take that away from them because they just have so much to tell me. And so when they did their do now, um, it was a check-in, right, of how they're feeling, whatever. And then like just a box that says like, okay, tell me whatever you want to tell me because I don't want to shut them down and say like, we don't have time to talk about that. I want to make time for it. And so the form really allowed for them, like some, some students will take two minutes to fill out the do now. Some will take five to seven minutes and because it's self-paced, that's okay, right? And so... My students were really able to tell me so much of what was happening outside of school. And that made me realize like, oh, okay, this makes sense as to why you're behaving the way that you're behaving right now, right? Or, oh, this makes sense as to why you're not understanding this concept. Or this makes sense as to why you don't want to work with so-and-so. And so just giving that, getting that insight was really powerful for me. Because again, right, like my focus was getting to know my students as human beings. And so with that, like my students knew, like they could ask me any questions that they wanted. They could tell me, they could really confide in me. Because again, I'm also a firm believer that like what each child needs to have at least one trusted adult wherever they are at home or at school, because then we know that like they feel safe, they feel brave enough to share what they need to so that they're not feeling isolated or have to figure things out on their own. So it just takes one trusted adult. And so if I could just have, you know, even two or three students who say like, Ms. D is my trusted adult, that's okay with me, but I'm going to check in with every single student to make sure like, okay, how are we doing? And also I'm going to give you space to really authentically show up as yourself. Yeah. And you're giving them that, yeah, that space to really share and have a safe environment to do that. And I'm sure that means a world to kids who, because so often when there are those unproductive behaviors in a class or kids are, you know, they're just doing something that's so frustrating. It's like, 
it rarely has anything to do with us or our classes, right? It's the other stuff that they're carrying in their kind of metaphorical backpacks to school that's, you know, making them struggle. And so when do they get to share what's happening in their lives so that we really have empathy for what they're going through and what they're bringing to school? Yeah. And that also just makes me think about being an an adult as well, right? Like we can't take things personally about what something else or someone else is doing, right? And so it's like everyone just has their own stories. And so when we think about just like sharing, like showing kindness and empathy is honestly the best way to do it. And sometimes like as teachers, you know, we, we go through really awful things in our personal lives and we still have to show up to our students, show up for our students, right? And pretend as if everything is okay because we have to be that person for some of our students. But then also sometimes knowing that like, oh, you are irritated today because of what happened outside of school. <laughs> like it's not just the students, it's also the teachers. So sometimes when I'm like in a bad mood and I think like all my students are awful, it's like, no girl, because you didn't get any sleep last night. <laughs> yeah. And so just being able to check in with that. And then also because you create that community, um, typically when I tell my students like, hey, I'm not in a good mood today, when I tell you those kids behave as if <laughs> they're like, okay, we're walking on eggshells and not really walking on eggshells, but they just knew like, Ms. D's not feeling well today. So I'm not going to try her today. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to push today. And, and I think that that's, that's also really cool. And so when we think about building, you know, community in our classroom so that we could collaboratively work together. Um, again, starting out with low lifts, right? When we think about like these uh, beginning the classes uh, with just a fun little question, that's such a small thing to do. I know like when we uh, went into virtual learning because of COVID and our students weren't showing up because again, they're not used to that, right? I really took the first five, 10 minutes of class just like, hey, what Netflix show are y'all watching? Because I know you're watching Netflix, <laughs> Um, and then, you know, tying in because we were covering narrative and tying in with like, what stories are you listening to? What stories are you watching? And so making it really relevant for students so that when they go into their breakout rooms, they're already hyped, you know, and, and talking about whatever they're talking about and then getting them to align whatever it is they're talking about with what we're learning. And so to them, they think it's just talking, but really you're talking about the stuff we're learning about in class. Mm-hmm. Well, and just talking period means that when it shifts to conversations that are more academic in nature, you're, you're not, you're, you're warmed up, right? You're more willing to just kind of make that transition and feel comfortable than chatting about stuff related to the class, which I think is really, that was a misstep online where, you know, teachers would throw kids in breakout rooms and kids would just like shut down or wouldn't say anything and interact. And I was like, let's warm them up. (laughs) Let's let them have like a fun chat and then transition into an academic task. So the first time they unmute, it wasn't to dive into an academic topic. Yeah. And I, I find that to be really funny now because I was an instructional coach during COVID and that was the biggest thing that my teachers complained about is that, well, I put them in breakout rooms and it's all blank spaces and nobody's talking. (laughs) And I'm like, well, yeah, it's a little, it's, it's a little different. It's kind of like a forced um, conversation, but there's lots of guidance that are, that's needed (laughs) for it to happen. Yep. Um, okay, well, Callan, is there anything else that you want to cover that we didn't cover um, about collaboration or community building and anything, honestly? 
I would just say like a tip to do this more consistently when I am running training sessions with teachers around using blended learning models, when we are designing the online learning components, I will often encourage them, use the four C's of 21st century learning as a lens. Like, can you really prioritize critical thinking, communication, collaboration, creativity as we design these online learning components? Because that that is like a way in which to avoid just using tech to isolate. So that would be my one like little piece of advice when you're in your design work. I feel like our um, show notes is going to be full of resources. That's going to be so exciting. (laughs) (laughs) And it's wild because in this position, right, I'm learning so much from just everyone, all the educators that I've spoken to. And I'm like, dang, if I could have a redo and just go back in the classroom, I I feel like I would just blow it out the water. Um, And so (laughs) thank you so much for sharing your experience and expertise. I really appreciate being in the same space with you, Catelyn. Um, And so again, listeners, remember, you can always email us at podcast at modernclassrooms.org. And you can find the show notes for this episode at podcast.modernclassrooms.org slash 108. We'll have this episode's recap and transcript uploaded to the Modern Classrooms blog on Friday. So be sure to check there or check back in the show notes for this episode if you'd like to access those. Thank you all for listening. Have a great week and we'll be back next Sunday. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org. And you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students in schools. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Podcast.